Lots of people begin to assume that God does not do certain things anymore simply because he does not do everything. Simply because you know, he does not answer every prayer the way we want it answered. He doesn't heal every person who is sick or, or bring, you know, raise every person out of their wheelchair who, who is you know, crippled or can't walk or whatever the case. Like, like, and they start to think, well, man, that, that stuff must be, must be for back then. And, and, and I just, I just want to say to you, like, like, just because God does not do everything doesn't mean that he can't do anything. In the New Testament, miracles seemed really normal, and today they don't. For many of us, you know, the thought of a miracle can be incredibly challenging because on one hand, a miracle would be incredibly amazing, and, and it could absolutely build our faith, but on the other hand, many of us have never seen the kinds of things that we read about in Scripture. <laughs> so most of these miracles seem impossible for us to experience today. But what if we could? What if miracles were always expected to be a part of the normal Christian life? What if God is still looking to move in ways we could never begin to understand or explain? And what if heaven coming to earth was something we were always intended to experience? Hey, we're kicking off a brand new teaching series today called Heaven on Earth. Uh, Really excited about it. It's a teaching series that's going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. Um, And so it's kind of like our prelude to Easter Um, In the Gospel of John, we read about all of these, you know, out-of-the-ordinary, unexplainable miracles that Jesus became famous for, and repeatedly, people became shocked and amazed by what they saw him do. Uh, Very quickly, he gained this reputation for healing the sick and the crippled, calming, you know, the forces of nature, uh, delivering people from, you know, the bondage of evil and, and raising the dead, you know, to the point that even his disciples, one day, they turn to each other and they say to themselves, uh, who is this man, <laughs> right? Like they had been around him for a long time already at this point. They had seen him do things, but they saw him do something that was uh, that just was, was, was impossible <laughs> to them. And it caused them to say, hey, who, who is this man? I like what Luke says in Acts chapter two. He says this, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now, what Luke is saying here is, is he's kind of talking about, you know, the different things Jesus taught, the claims, the audacious claims he made about himself. And, and, and Luke is basically saying that, you know, you saw these signs and these wonders and these miracles, and those, those actually gave credibility to the things Jesus taught and the claims he made about him himself that uh, were just difficult to believe. And so he's, he's saying, like, you saw Jesus do this and that, and it just seemed so impossible. And, uh, and I think that's probably because they were. They were impossible. There's a man named Thomas Watson who, in the early 1900s, uh, he became the CEO of a fledgling uh, company called Computing Tab- Tabulating Recording Company called CTR. And uh, one day he's working out of his garage and uh, he gets this bright idea. He tells his wife, you know, I think I'm going to rename the company. That's a pretty tough name to remember, right? Computing, tabulating, recording company. He says, I think we're going to rename this, this, this business. And uh, he says, I'm going to call it International Business Machines, IBM. And his wife looks at him and she says, you're working out of your garage. Like, what? You know, like, uh, you know, in other words, she sa- she's saying to her husband, look where you are right now. Like, what do you mean international? This isn't an international company. Look where you are. That's impossible. That's impossible. 
I want you to catch this big thought today. I, I, th- I believe that there is an ache that exists within every person to see the impossible made possible. I believe that that's hardwired into us by God. There's this ache within us to, to see the impossible made possible. I think that this is part of like the human spirit. When you think about kind of like the, the evolution of humanity from, from like in terms of like expansion and innovation and the industrial revolution and things like that, when you think about airplanes and automobiles and electricity and air conditioning and refrigeration, there just seems to be this attitude wired into the human spirit that just says that, that, that just because it's never happened doesn't mean that it won't ever happen. You know, there seems to be this, this curiosity inside of us when, when we reach our limits to say, yeah, but what if, what if that wasn't our limit? What if, like, we could do more? And this is what I believe it should be like to follow Jesus. I, got, I, I think that we should long to see the impossible made possible, that this is, this is kind of wired into us. This is, this is kind of like what it's supposed to be like to be a follower of God. And, and so perhaps the greatest difference that we see between the early church and then the Western church today is that there has become little to no expectation for the impossible, I think. I think it, at least. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them intently and he said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, I love this verse, right? Because it really, it really kind of frames up for us uh, the reality that in our own strength and in our own ability, there are so many limitations. There's so many things we can't do. But uh, we want to live with this belief that with God, anything is possible. I think much of what makes things seem impossible to us is that we look at most things very humanly. You know, whether it's disease or mindsets or bondage or challenges or whatever it is, I think that we have a tendency to look at most things in life very humanly. And on the surface, I think most of us read this verse in Matthew 19, 26, and we actually believe it. I just, I just think that there's a little bit of tension that exists when we read the verse like this because you know, some, of us, some of us think, yeah, Jesus does do the impossible. He just doesn't do the impossible for me. Because right, we see, you see him do that for, for maybe other people, and, and we hear testimonies, and we hear about miracles and things that happen, and we're like, man, man, he, he seems to, to do this for others. He just doesn't do, it, doesn't do it for me. And some of us are even more discouraged, and we've said, you know what, I don't even think he does that kind of stuff anymore. It made for a great flannel graph story in Sunday school where people were you know, swallowed by a giant fish, or God spoke through a burning bush, or people walked on water, or whatever the case, but that worked for Sunday school. That doesn't work for like everyday life. It doesn't work for me. Today. And I just, I just want to make a big statement today, okay? I, I want us to believe in a big God who can do anything. I, I want that for you. I want that for your faith. I want that for your experience in life. I want you to believe in a big God who can do anything. And listen to me, just because he does not do everything does not mean that he cannot do anything, Okay? Lots of people begin to assume that God does not do certain things anymore simply because he does not do everything. Simply because you know, he does not answer every prayer the way we want it answered. He doesn't heal every person who is sick or, or bring, you know, raise every person out of their wheelchair who, who is you know, crippled or can't walk or whatever the case. Like, like, and they start to think, well, man, that, that stuff must be, must be for back then. And, and, and I just, I just want to say to you, like, like, just because God does not do everything doesn't mean that he can't do anything. In the New Testament, miracles seemed really normal, and today they don't. I kind of want to talk about that. I want to kind of move into that tension a little bit. I think for many of us, you know, the thought of a miracle can be incredibly challenging because on one hand, a miracle would be incredibly amazing, 
And, and it could absolutely build our faith, but on the other hand, many of us have never seen the kinds of things that we read about in Scripture. <laughs> so most of these miracles seem impossible for us to experience today. But what if we could? What if miracles were always expected to be a part of the normal Christian life? What if God is still looking to move in ways we could never begin to understand or explain? And what if heaven coming to earth was something we were always intended to experience? You catch this, this thought. I think that the Holy Spirit is looking to fill our hearts with a hunger for God's kingdom to break into our world. Every miracle we see is evidence of heaven on earth. It's evidence of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth in the here and now. Listen to me. Every time somebody is healed, every time someone is converted, comes to faith in Jesus, every time someone is delivered from, from any kind of struggle, any kind of bondage, a piece of heaven has come upon them, destroying the devil's works. We read about this in 1 John 3, that this is why Jesus came. For the Son of Man came to destroy the devil's works. It's the reason why he came. And so heaven on earth, I think, is what we should hunger for. Because heaven on earth is the answer to all the problems and all the chaos in the world around us. Like you, you, you read the news, you see what's going on, and, and I think all of us become troubled. And we're like, what, what is the answer? How do, you, how do you fix all of this? And I think when the people of God begin to hunger and cry out and, and, and kind of surrender their lives in a way to where the kingdom of God can, can flow through them and show up here on earth, uh, amazing things happen. Heaven really does come. And so we have to kind of get our mind around, well, then what are we really talking about? What really is a miracle? I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, a miracle is an interference with nature by supernatural power. I like the, the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia says that a miracle occurs when God steps in to do something beyond what could be accomplished according to the laws of nature as we understand them. Moreover, a miracle is beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability. So let's kind of, kind of like merge these together and work with this definition right here. A miracle is, is in, in my opinion, is when God in heaven intervenes in a way that causes the impossibilities on earth to suddenly become possible. They are, listen to me, miracles are not the disruption of the natural order but are the restoration of the natural order. That's what's going on. When prayer gets answered, when God intervenes, when things happen, you all know we're living in a world where like things are not working the way they were originally designed. Ever since the garden, like the world has not operated and functioned the way it was originally intended. And so when, when heaven comes, when, when the kingdom of God comes, when, when someone is saved, healed, delivered, whatever the case, it is, it is quite literally a restoration of something that has been distorted back to the way it was originally designed to operate and function. And I just think that miracles are intended to accompany the proclamation of the gospel. You know, the, the gospel of salvation is important. Like, it, it, there's nothing more important than forgiveness. There's no greater miracle than forgiveness from sin. Let's make that clear. But, but Romans 15, Paul writes this, and he says, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. See, so I'm going around and I'm preaching the gospel of good, of, of good news to people and all of these other things are happening and as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel to people. And we see this, 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 this reality, like as we read the New Testament, that like, that like these sort of things seem to be pretty common and, and, then, and then maybe in our everyday experience, it's not. And, and a lot of people will say, hey, hey this doesn't exist anymore. And I would just say that might, that might be true maybe in, in parts of the Western church, but in terms of the global church, 
I mean, God is moving in powerful ways. Like faith is at an all-time high. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people every day are coming to faith in Jesus in, in some of the most difficult, hard-to-reach places in the world. Uh, people are, are literally having encounters and visions of Jesus and coming to faith in places where you can't even preach the gospel of Jesus. There are people being saved, healed, and delivered all over the globe. You know that most people who get saved in a, in a, uh, in a country that is, that, you know, you would describe maybe as third world or, you know, where, where they're very much uh, influenced by, you know, um, you know dark magic and, and that kind of stuff. They come to faith and they already have a lot of belief for the supernatural because they've been living around supernatural things their whole life. They, they're just now kind of experiencing uh, the, like the, the non-perverted, non-twisted reality of the supernatural. Miracles are intended to accompany the proclamation of the gospel, but there's a, there, there, is, there is a bit of a problem when we look at all this because in Matthew 7, Jesus ends the uh, great Sermon on the Mount with, with some of the most startling and, and scary words you will read in the entire Bible. He says this in Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's a tough one. Like, that's a tough one to stomach. Like, I hate reading this verse uh, because, man, it causes me to go, whoa, like, what is going on? Because I'm someone who, I pray for people like, I've, I've, I've seen amazing things happen, and, and, and what it really comes down to is, like, am I someone who does the will of the Father who is in, in heaven? And, and Jesus is making it very clear that, that, uh, um, that, that it's really important for us to understand this, this kind of truth right here, that your Lord is the one that you obey. Your Lord is the one that you obey. Just because we say that Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that he actually is. Does that, does that make some sense? Okay. And apparently, there's going to be this day that Jesus talks about here where people are going to stand before him, and they're going to be a bit confused because they've claimed him as their Lord without living with him as their Lord. And Jesus will say to them, like, hey, I, I, I wish I did. I just don't know you. Like, I, like we, we've never met. Like, I don't know who you are. And what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot find your true identity in Christ apart from a life of obedience. And obedience is the key to unlocking the life that Jesus has for us because obedience leads us, right here in verse 21, it leads us to do the will of the Father who is in heaven, which is a sign that he really is our Lord, right? When we are doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. So, so what is the will of God? I think the broadest understanding that we have of the will of God is actually found in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus tells us to pray like this in Matthew chapter six. He says, he says pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6, 10. I don't know if you've ever, you know, I'm sure a lot of you know the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you've ever kind of lifted this verse and just kind of examined it and thought about like the implications of, these statement, of this statement. But this is really a plea for, to God for the reality of his world to change the reality of this world. You understand? Like that's what's being asked here. Like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we're to pray. Our primary assignment as followers of Jesus is to be bringers of the kingdom so that heaven starts to manifest here on earth. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power, okay? And then we see, like Jesus, 
like send people out, send his followers out. And, and he sa- it says this in Luke 10, 8 and 9, that when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near. Like there is this idea that, that when things that we cannot explain, things that do not happen by our own strength or our ability begin to manifest, begin to happen, the sick are made well. Like this is, a, this is an example of the kingdom of God coming near to you. It's close, right here. And in Matthew 10, 7, Jesus says, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. And then what that means is heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. The kingdom of heaven has been brought near to you. Let me just say this. I think this is an important thought for us to wrestle with. That part of the problem we face today is that our expectation for the supernatural has been replaced with surprise. Expectation has been replaced with surprise. So, like, we know of this. Like, that's why we can get up on, like, a fifth Sunday and talk about, uh, you know, uh, all of these testimonies. And we'll talk about somebody who got healed or God did something miraculous, answered a prayer. And we're like, whoa, can you believe that? And, and I think that that's awesome. But I think in the early days of the church, it, it wasn't so much that as it was, like, yeah? Like, like that's what we expect to happen, Right? Look at, look at what, uh, what Luke writes in Acts 3. He tells the story of Peter and John, you know, the, one of the most famous stories we have in the Bible where, where Peter and John are walking by the temple gate and they see this, this blind beggar and, and uh, crippled beggar and, and uh, he asks them for, for, for money. He's asking like alms for the poor basically and, and uh, they pass by him and, so, and Peter becomes troubled in his spirit. He turns and looks at the man and he says, hey, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you, rise and walk. And it says in verse 11, it says that while the beggar held on to Peter and John, right, so he gets healed, it says all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. It says when Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? You stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. He says, why, why are you shocked and surprised here? Like this isn't about us, this is something that God did. Why are you surprised? And I think what happens a lot of times is our expectation for God to intervene our expectation for God to answer prayer, our expectation for God to do the impossible has been replaced by surprise. And I'm all good with God surprising me, but I I think there is something about living a life of expectation that is different, an expectation for God to intervene and do the impossible. I think that too often we become more impressed by the size of our problems than we are by the size of our God, and this will never create the necessary environment of faith we must have to land heaven to earth. Um. Yeah, can I, can I get, get a good amen? Okay. Um, so in, in the Gospel of John, we read about seven miracles that Jesus did. We're going to take one each week, and we're going to look at them. And, and not, just, not just take, you know, uh, for the purpose of just like, man, let's talk miracles this whole time. But, but for the purpose of like, what is it about these miracles that like we can pull out and, and that we can apply to our life that, that can affect how we live and how we see Jesus and how we see kind of our our everyday life. And so in John chapter two, we see the very first miracle that Jesus ever did. And it says this in, in, in verse one, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, over the course of my life, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been in a ton of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. I 
I have uh, been around them a lot. And one thing I've learned through my experience is that nearly every time there, there is uh, something that goes wrong. Like, you know, you plan, you rehearse, you pray, and still something inevitably goes wrong. You, you plan an outdoor wedding and it unexpectedly rains. You know, in our case, uh, you know, over 18 years ago, a blizzard shows up and uh, a bunch of the people who are supposed to show up for your wedding, they can't make it, you know. Uh, they, 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 can't, they can't get there. There, there, there is an entire movie uh, about the runaway bride, like, because apparently that's a thing. Like, stereotypes exist because they're, they're real in some ways, right? Like, or we talk about, like, the groom not showing up. Like, I've never been to a wedding like that, but, like, I mean, come on. Like, these things exist because these things happen, you know? And then, uh, you know, maybe more relatable is that there's always, like, the tensions that exist between family members at Weddings, you put everybody in one room, and who knows? Uh, you turn on the lights and the bugs come out, right? So um, something always goes wrong. I remember in 2015 when my sister got married, um, it was at Living History Farms, and uh, it was supposed to be this outdoor wedding, and the reception was in the barn, and it's like literally 10 minutes before the wedding starts. Everybody is seated. The guests are there. And uh, you know, I had no role in the wedding, by the way. I, I, just, I take no responsibility for this. Um, but there was no sound system, like, like outside for the, you know, my brother was doing the wedding and he, he could, I mean, there's no mic for him to speak into. No one would hear him talk. There was just nothing. And within 10 minutes, like we had to, we had to take the sound system that was in the barn ready for like them to dance and DJ for like the most important part of like actually bringing Jesus into this, this union, you know, and, uh, and, and allow there to be uh, sound. And so look, there's always something that goes wrong. At, at weddings. Um, in John chapter 2, we read the story that there is this wedding that Jesus attends with his family and with his disciples, and at this wedding, something goes terribly wrong. The wine runs out. The wine runs out. This family is uh, throwing a wedding party for what some scholars suggest was about, for, for about 100 people and the wine runs out. Now, this may not seem like a very big deal to us. This may seem like a strange miracle to us. It actually even seems like an unnecessary miracle, like to me, when at first glance. Because to us, this isn't the sort of problem that Jesus should probably concern himself with. Like, like so what the wine runs out? Would you just, like, get over it? Like, there are more important things for Jesus to do. There are children in this world who are starving. Jesus is supposed to be bothered by wine running out at a wedding party, like, isn't there more important things? And I think we understand, you know, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the le lepers, and delivering those who are demonized, but wine, like, what, why does this get his time? Why does this get his attention? Why does this concern him? We might even be thinking through our more modern, more budget-friendly lens that would impose a two-drink two drink limit on our guests anyway. <laughs> Uh, but let me tell you, at this wedding, this was a really big problem. Like, yeah, I wouldn't let you drink for days and days anyway. I, I would, I'm not paying for all that. Like, we might think that way. But this is a big problem in their culture because in ancient weddings like this, uh, man, these, these parties, these receptions, they would last for seven days. It was huge. It was a huge celebration, these two families being joined together via marriage. And so running out of wine was sort of this, this, this major social you know, faux pas. It was this major social mistake, uh, especially on only the third day. And it could bring shame on this couple for a really long time. Uh, a wedding was expected to be sort of the best kind of party, the party of all parties. And for the couple to fail in providing the adequate hospitality 
Uh, this would have been a great dishonor to them. And, and uh, in this closely knit community uh, of Jesus' day, uh, you know, they didn't live in communities kind of like we live in now. They were much more, uh, you know, uh, intimate, much smaller, close-knit. Man, this would have never been forgotten. It would have likely followed the newly married couple and the, their families like the rest of their lives. And so this is a very, very embarrassing situation uh, to be in. And they are very concerned uh, because they have ran out of wine. Now, maybe they ran out of wine because they didn't plan properly, or maybe they didn't have enough money, and so they just hoped that this would stretch out. Maybe they didn't anticipate people uh, having as good of a time as they did in such a short amount of, time, of, of days. Um, but this, for whatever reason, Jesus uh, steps in to ensure that the party uh, doesn't stop. It seems bizarre to me. But I want to point out like some important things here that, that I want us to grab, I want us to take uh, out of this story. John tells us this. He tells us that the problem comes on the third day. Problem comes on the third day. John 2, 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, I think this detail is significant, the third day, because anyone who knows the gospel story knows that in Jesus' life, the third day carries some weight. Am I right? The third day speaks of the day that God moves. It speaks of the day that God brings life. It speaks of resurrection power. And so John gives us this detail because he wants us to know that within this story, in this embarrassing moment, in this very difficult moment that's gonna bring shame on this family, he wants us to know within this story there's a third day and that God is about to move. Now, let me ask you something. Much like the family in this story, have you ever faced a bad day? Right? You ever had a day that you just, you're just like, man, this isn't good. What if you started doing something different? Like, instead of calling it a bad day, what if you started calling it a third day because you know that God is about to move? The third day is when there's a resurrection. It's when there's new life. It's when there's a miracle. How many of you are glad that Jesus doesn't just work on Sundays? Can I get a good amen, everybody? How many of y'all know that when Jesus is around, the third day can be any day? And in this story, we see the significance that the problem comes on the third day. Uh, but, and while that might be uh, difficult for them and that might, that might be a cause of concern, we're looking at this through the lens of the gospel and we understand on the third day, the third day is a great day for God to step in, for God to move, for a miracle to happen. For the family hosting this wedding, they're facing a literal and figurative third day and they have no idea that God is about to move. Story goes on in verse five. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Let me just explain that, right? These are the, the kind of, of, of big jars that would like um, exist uh, outside of the temple. It, you know, this was, this was for ceremonial washing so you could cleanse yourself uh, before you would enter into a holy place. So these same kind of jars are, are, are outside of, of this, this place where they are, so it's very likely that they are near the synagogue or outside the synagogue. Um, and, and it's these very same jars, right, that, that, uh, uh, that, that Jesus tells them to go and to fill. He says to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they fill them to the brim, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water 
that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Like, why would you save the best till last? Like, they're not even gonna know the difference at this point. You understand what's going on? This is not just like, there are people who like to suggest that like this wasn't real wine, those people who, who you know, uh, who, who teach like uh, uh, abstinence with alcohol and that like you, sh- you shouldn't drink. And uh, like, they try to say, well, this wasn't real alcohol because it didn't have enough time to ferment. Like, that's ridiculous because like, man, this party is, it's, it's going wild. Like, these people have no idea. They're at a place where they can't even tell the difference between, you know, the good wine and the bad wine. And, and Jesus just steps in and he lets the party continue. Jesus likes to have a good time. I don't know if you guys like to know that about him. He likes to have a good time. You read this story, though, and I think, I think there's, there's some really important things we got to grab. I think, I think you have to understand that wine here also serves as a metaphor, okay? Wine is a picture of celebration. It is a picture of abundance. It's also a picture of joy. Like, theologians talk about this. Like, when wine is, is described in Scripture, like, it's, it's, it's this uh, picture of joy, abundance, celebration, and, and, and yet the reality of life that we all know is that from time to time, the wine does run out, does it not? It's this picture, wine is this picture of joy and abundance and celebration, and yet, and yet we know that in life, from time to time, the wine runs out, health runs out, relationships run out, success runs out, marriages run out. There was once joy, there was once life, there was once abundance, but it has ran out and I just want to ask you a question this morning. Like, like I want you to think about this and really, really uh, you know, let it kind of get into you. Where in your life is the wine running out? Where, where are you in greatest need of a miracle? Like, can you name it? Can you describe it? And not only is Jesus doing the impossible here in this story, he's also using this moment or this opportunity to teach something, and he still works like this, by the way. Like, like, like he doesn't just do the impossible, and, and, and then he's, he's out. Like, anytime he steps into our life to intervene, there's also a lesson to be learned. There's always something that he is trying to teach us, and I think it's in this case that Jesus did not only come to put wine back into your glass, he came to breathe life into the very places of your life, man, that just aren't working, the areas, the things that have ran out, the things that are dead. Do you notice that he has the wrong ingredients? Do you notice that? Jesus didn't need water. He needed grapes. Right? He had the wrong ingredients. And I love that here because it's like, you know, if, if he wants to make wine, like, all right, let's, let's, get, let's get the grapes. Let's do that. But, but he, he asks them to fill these jars with, with water. And I, I love this about God because he can oftentimes... Like, his track record is he takes the wrong ingredients and he does the impossible. Like, the wrong ingredients of, like, a divorce or the wrong ingredients of defeat or fear or sin or bad health or bad finances, and he takes the wrong ingredients of your life and the wrong ingredients of my life, and he does the impossible. This is who he is. And when the wine runs out here in this story, Mary comes to Jesus in this moment of social and cultural embarrassment, tells him very plainly, son, They have no more wine. They have no more wine, which is her way of communicating to Jesus that he should do something about this problem. You ever had somebody like 
tell you something, and, and it was more behind what they said. It wasn't just the words they said. Like, they, like, um, like man, the dishwasher's full. Like, you know, like, oh, like, oh. Oh, what does that mean? You know, like, oh, you're wanting me to do something about that. And there's something going on here where, like, Mary says these words to Jesus. They don't have any more wine, but there's more to it. She's telling him, I want you to do something about this. You need to, you need to fix this problem. Mary knows who Jesus is and what he's capable, capable of. And after initially telling his mom that his time has not yet come, meaning, meaning he has not yet done a miracle. He has not yet stepped into his mission, his ministry. We read about Jesus' birth in, in the first couple chapters of Matthew and Luke. Then we hear about him at 12 years old teaching in the, in the synagogue, which is pretty fascinating, by the way. And, and, and that's it. Until he is now about 30 years old, and his mom tells him, hey, I want you to, like, I want you to do some of, some of that fancy stuff. And, and, and he tells her, hey, like, I, my time hasn't come yet. Like, it's not yet my time. But he relents, and he finally begins to get to work. And I love this in, in John 2, 5. His, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. These five words, do whatever he tells you. You know how significant these are? These are the essence of the Christian life. Do whatever he tells you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Do whatever he tells you. Look at, look at this big thought today. I think obedience is the key to a supernatural life. Walking in obedience, living in obedience. Like, like the opposite of obedience, right? That's, that's, it's usually sin or, or uh, um, I mean, we could probably find some, some, some less uh, difficult words there like, to make us feel better about ourselves, but it's just pretty much sin. If you're in disobedience, like you're sinning against God. Sustained sin, when, when sin is allowed to continue, you know what it does? It prevents power. It prevents sustained power. The pistons in the engine just don't fire properly like when there is, is ongoing issues in our life where, where, where there is not obedience. And it just, it's like everything kind of feels off kilter. It, 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 we're, we're just not functioning right as followers of Jesus because obedience is the key to a supernatural life. John 2.8 says, Then Jesus told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Look at this. They did so. They obeyed. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water and had been, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They obeyed. Obedience is the key to a supernatural life. Look, we don't know when the water turned into wine exactly. Because we don't have like, like this, this deal here where like Jesus prays over it or he blesses it. You know, um, We don't know exactly when it turned into wine, but we do know that somewhere between the moment that they drew the water out and gave it to the master, like a miracle had taken place. Obedience was required. Obedience has always been the breeding ground for greater faith and impossible outcomes. Obedience. Like, I'm going to go obey even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't want to. Obedience has always been the breeding ground for greater faith and impossible outcomes. Catch this thought. Before the water turned into wine, someone had to do the ordinary tiresome task of filling the water pots. We want the new wine to just appear, but Jesus calls us to fill the jars first. God often wants us to participate in our own transformation. Do whatever he tells you. Obey. Do whatever he tells you and watch as you start to create sort of this environment for impossible things to manifest in your life. John 2, 9, the second half of, of 9 uh, and verse 10 says, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first 
and then the cheaper wine, and after the guests have had too much to drink, uh, uh, but you've saved the best till now. Like, this is an amazing story. And I, and I again, I'm, I'm kind of a bit, a bit surprised that this is how Jesus sort of bursts onto the scene with his miraculous ministry. Um, but I, wanna, I, think, I think what this just remind us is that there's no situation Jesus is not interested in helping us with. And sometimes we, we, we think, man, like, like, how can I ever bring that to God? Like, like, or, or that's so small, like, I don't need prayer for that. You got, there's people with bigger issues, let them come up for prayer. Or, or, or I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna call you up on a Saturday night, you know, when, when you're with your family and you got all these things. Like, like I, I don't need to bother you with my issues. Look at me, th- th- there is no situation that Jesus is not interested in helping us with. He's not only interested in the, sort of the big stuff, he cares about the seemingly insignificant things as well. It says in verse 11, right, that this is the first of his miraculous signs. This is the first one. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, which Cana, by the way, it's kind of like this, the outskirts of Nazareth. So it's up there in the northern part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is the area of, of Israel where Jesus was, was raised. Uh, it revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, you can go ahead and come on up. You know the miracle of turning water into wine It's far more miraculous when we realize what this miracle really meant for Jesus. Because this was his first miracle. And prior to this, Jesus had done no public miracles and no public ministry, really. The, The wedding miracle right here, this would be the defining moment that would set the table for something greater in the world. Not everyone knew the significance of this moment, but Jesus knew the significance. Mary knew the significance of this moment. She knew the greatness that he was met for. She knew that, he, uh, that the world would be changed because of his life, and she also knew the sacrifices that he would make would be very costly. And from the very beginning, she knew what it meant to give birth to a Messiah, that while she had to raise him and and, and uh, watch over him and keep him, that there would be a day eventually where she would have to let him go to be who he was born to be, to be who he was destined to become. And so look at this big thought, this miracle, this revealing of his power was not just the launch of his public ministry, it was a countdown to his death as well. Like this miracle happens, he kind of all of a sudden sort of comes out of hiding in a way being sort of, sort of prepared in isolation, sort of being prepared in, in, in uh, seclusion in some ways, he now bursts onto the scene here, this very first miracle, and the clock begins to tick. So this wasn't just turning water into wine, this was turning a son into a sacrifice. He begins now his three-year journey from this moment to the cross. This was counting the cost and making the purchase. This is what Jesus is doing right here. Is this, is this really worth it? Am I gonna, is this really my time? I'm gonna step in now and the clock's gonna start to tick. Mary knew this and she still asks of Jesus. They're out of wine and they need a miracle. Mary looks towards the servants who perhaps are not ready for what she's about to say. She says, do whatever he tells you. And from that moment, the miracles of Jesus begin. The miracles of Jesus begin, and, and, and I think this is a real powerful thought to consider, that the people who will do anything Jesus says are the ones he can use to bring heaven to earth. They're the ones. That's not a guilt 
thing, that's not shaming anybody, but the ones who just say, hey, this is not my life anyway. It's like Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The ones who surrender, who say, God, whatever you want my life to look like, I'll do it. Become the ones that he can use to bring heaven to earth. And this is what we want. This is what we wanna believe. This is what we wanna hang on to. This is what we wanna ask God for. We want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where do you need his kingdom to just manifest and show up in your life? Where do you need the impossible to be made possible? Where do you need heaven on earth in your life? Would you just stand for a moment as we uh, get ready to close? I'd love it if you just bow your heads for a moment and, and just kind of let this be a kind of a reverent sort of time here. And I want to just remind you that here uh, following the, the service, um, we're going to have our prayer team available here at, at the front. And if you need any kind of prayer for anything, you need a miracle, if you need God to move in your life, if you need something to change and shift in your emotions, uh, something in your body, you need healing, you need God to work in powerful ways in relationships that seem broken, I want you to come and, and, and get prayer uh, today. But if you would just, uh, in this moment before the Lord, just be honest, and, and just if you're willing to just acknowledge, you know, Pastor Jordan, like, yeah, like, there are some things in my life right now, I just need heaven to come. I need heaven to show up on earth in my life. Could I just, uh, could I just see that, your hand right now? Could I just encourage you in some prayer? You need God to move. You just need him to do it. Like, like you, you, you can't like continue to live this way where like you read about a God who looks one way in the Bible, but in your life it looks entirely different. Like you need him to move powerfully. You need him to fix and mend relationships. You need him to restore what has been lost and taken and stolen. You need him to breathe life into things that are dead. You need him to, to completely transform and change a situation you don't know how to fix. So Jesus, we do come before you right now and we thank you that you are more than able. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. We come before you now, oh God. And I thank you that there is nothing that we are facing in this room, God, that is, that is too big for you, that is impossible for you. So we speak, God, now to everyone who, who feels discouraged, everyone who just doesn't know the right next step, everyone who doesn't know exactly what to do with what they're facing. Lord, I pray right now that you would just minister to every person under the sound of my voice, God, you would just begin to rise up within them, great faith. God, you would begin to, to help them sort of move their eyes off of their situation and fix them on you. You would help them to realize that even though maybe there is some bad news, that even though maybe there is some stuff that isn't easy to walk through, that you've, you've not tasked them to walk through this by themselves. And Lord, we ask now in Jesus' name that you would step in and do the things that you have always been famous for, the impossible stuff that man cannot do, the things that we cannot just fix on our own, God. And so we pray for those in our families, God, who are lost, who are far from you, and we say, God, man, we have tried, we have tried to, to best reflect you to them, to show them what, what Jesus is all about, and nothing has shifted yet. 
nothing has happened. And so we say, God, would you come and do what you are famous for in their life? Would you bring them into right standing and right relationship with you, God? Lord, would you come and would you heal our bodies? God, those of us who are sick, those of us who are struggling, those of us who just don't know how to handle the things we're facing physically, the pain in our bodies, Lord, I pray now in Jesus' name that those things would go and be gone, that they would get out. Father, we refuse to, to, to reduce our experience with you to anything less than the standard of Scripture. And God, I thank you that uh, I thank you that you still set people free. I thank you that you still change outcomes. I thank you that you still step in and do things that seem insignificant, that seem like, like maybe this isn't a big deal to other people, but it's a big deal to me. I thank you that you still turn water into wine. And I ask for that power right now, that resurrection power that looks at dead things and breathes life into them to just show up now over every person here today, God. Breathe hope, breathe life, God, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. As we sing this song, as we close out with this song, I want you just to kind of get a little growly in your spirit. Like as you start to think about the things where you need heaven to come, you need heaven to manifest on earth, where you need God to do the things he's famous for, the impossible to be made possible. I want you to begin to even just pray and intercede over those things as you declare prophetically that he's more than able. He is more than able. He is more than able. He's more than willing. He can do it. And, uh, and I want you to kind of walk out of here differently today with, with new resolve, new faith, new belief that, uh, that God is moving in your life and he is clearing the obstacles out of the way. He's breaking every chain. He's tearing down every wall. He's doing the things in your life that you can't do yourself. Would you begin to just sing and pray through these lyrics, declare them and prophesy them over whatever situation you're in. If you're in a marriage that isn't working out right now, he is more than able. If you've got issues in your body right now, he is more than able. If you've got struggles with your kids right now, he is more than able. If you've got issues financially today, he is more than able. And would you just begin to call out to him, cry out to him, and ask for the God of the universe to step in and intervene in your life. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward. They can be up here at the altar. And as you need prayer today, I invite you to just come forward for prayer and let them intercede for you. Let them just agree with you. Let them believe with you that God is stepping in and doing the impossible.